Become another man, the dice rolls and I take another chance But life on life's terms can burn real deep All my scars will show that emotion bleeds So is death just a place that we go when we die? And is life just a test only meant for the wise? Hi and welcome to Straight From The Source, the new podcast from APSU, the Association of Participating Service Users. I'm your host, Emma Rafferty. In these podcasts, we're going to hear from people whose lives have been impacted by drugs and alcohol and from others who work in the field. Thank you so much for joining us. Just to note that this is part two of a two-part interview, so make sure you've listened to part one first. So... It, you know, they always talk about jail having all of these programs, relapse prevention, and setting you up with things when you get out to kind of minimize the risk of going straight back into that lifestyle. Did anything like that happen for you? I guess the first time I went to jail, the, the, the worst thing of, of about that was that I spent five months of the six months on remand. And then by the time, and remand's jails don't have any programs. Right. So you're not doing any of that stuff. And then I got sentenced, and then by the time I moved to the next jail, I was ready for release. So I missed... My gosh. But you know what? Like, at that stage, I still didn't recognise that I had a problem. So how did you view your using at that stage? How did you view everything that had happened to you? Like, being in jail, and do you link any of it? No, no. I really, I just... For me, this was just my life, and like... There was no problems with what I was doing. Was there anyone telling you different? Like, was there anyone saying to you, you know, you need help or... I guess up until then, like, I hadn't admitted that I I used drugs to my family. It was like a taboo subject for them, so they stayed away from it. But not even with the drugs, even with your behaviour, you know? Like, was there anyone saying, you need help, that you're out of control, you need, you know, support? Oh, yeah, my mum used to always say that to me. Like, by, by then, she was saying... You know, you, you need help, but I just like I, I avoided my mum for a long time, yeah. and then when she'd say things like that, I just turn on her and just make her really scared. Yeah. Um, because I didn't want to hear that stuff. Yeah. And I, I, I genuinely didn't feel like I needed help. I feel like I had it under control. Yeah. I feel like that's that was just what I was doing for the time being. You know, that was my life. So all the other years that you were in and out of jail, were you using when you were in jail then, or mostly sober? I actually, I didn't use much in jail ever. Um, I used to use a bit of butte, but even that, like, it's it's pretty expensive in there, and I like, I just Isn't didn't, it? I didn't really want to use it. Yeah, it was a very different effect from what you were used to using. Yeah, oh, I loved it. I still love the feeling. Of butte. Yeah, yeah, but I just didn't want to use it. Like, I'd rather spend my money on. Um, on getting a canteen and getting like chocolates and tuna <laughs> and, and making sure I had smokes for the week. Yeah. Um, Was your parents putting money in your jail account? Uh, the first couple of times, yes, but then that stopped as well. So how would you get money for canteen and everything? I'd have money in, in my bank and I was doing bank transfers over. You had money in your bank from crime and stuff? No, so I was also on the Centrelink. Uh, um, yeah, so after like the first time they released me, they put me straight on Centrelink. And so what changed, like you said, until 28, that that was your lifestyle? Yeah, yeah. So t- till 28, t- uh, 28 years old, like, um, I went in in early 2014. My mum came, came to visit me after a long time, and she came with my sister, and something just didn't look right. Sat me down and, and, and told me, like, 
you know, mum's got terminal cancer. Um, they've pretty much given her a couple of years to live. And, like, my sister's like, you know, pull your head in. Mm-hmm. And I'm like... And that was when, like, I felt like I had to tell them that I've been... Like, uh, and I'm sure they already knew by now anyway, but, like, we hadn't ever spoken about it. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I'm actually really fucked up on the drugs. And, like, I didn't mean to hurt anybody and I didn't mean to not be there and I didn't mean to be in jail all the time, but this is what I've been doing. And, um... What did they say? Everyone was really understanding. And, you know, my my sister was like, you know, like, I'll get you into rehab... Um, if that's what you want to do. And I was like, you know, at that stage I was still like, you know, I probably don't need rehab. That that sentence ended up being eight months. Um, and the only way I was actually... I, I served eight months of it. It was an 18-month sentence. And then at, at eight months, the only way that they were going to release me was on a drug court order. So it was a drug treatment order. Yeah. Um, which I felt like was perfect for me because I was doing three urines a day, a week, sorry, um, I had to stay clean or else I'd end up going back into back into to jail and they were going to give me counselling, drug and alcohol treatment and they were going to give me housing. And so I thought this was the perfect order for me to take. Yeah. Because here I was like feeling really guilty. My mum was going to die and like unless I did something about my drug use, like I probably was going to be in jail when that happened. Yeah. So... I bit the bullet and went on this order and I was released um, 14th of December 2014. And was that the start of your recovery? I lasted about two weeks again on that order, not using. And then it got really bad. And then I'd I'd get clean again because I was going to get thrown in jail. And then like, I'd get clean for a month or so and then... Next time I'd use, it, it would get really bad for another month. Were you still smoking? No, I was. I started injecting. I can't even tell you. I was probably about twenty six. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't long after I went to jail. Yeah. You get desensitized to needles and things like that in jail, you know. Because everyone's doing it. Because everyone's doing it, and yeah. it's just it's just what people do. Yeah. So. So you would try. You'd be trying really hard not to use, and then you'd relapse for a while, and it would be you know, straight back to a really severe level and then you'd be trying not to again, like what happened? Yeah, that, that's exactly what would happen. Like it'd get really back to a really severe level and then I'd re-offend and then like I'd spend a couple of days in the cells and I'd, I'd sober up and then I wouldn't use again for another month. But the whole time I wasn't using, all I was doing is going to like my counselling appointments, going to to do my urine screens. I'd have to go to court every week, so I was going to court. Um, I was just doing that stuff. Mm. I wasn't, like, actively looking for work or looking yeah. to study or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I wasn't... Um, I wasn't looking after my mental health. I'd get really, like, I'd stop using and then I'd eat a lot and I'd get really big. Mm. And then, yeah, I'd get really skinny again and... Yeah, that was a really... My worst using happened while I was on that order because I was I didn't want to use. That was the thing. I didn't want to use, and I was using against my will. Yeah. But I was using harder than I'd ever used before, and I was using to the point of writing myself off, and I was living this 
because when I start using, I just hide from everybody, everybody that cared about me, you know? Yeah. I was living this lonely, really meaningless life. Yeah. And for me, there was a turning point, you know? Like, I was, I was at home one night and I had heaps of friends over in my house and I felt really fucking lonely and like... I was sitting there and everyone was just doing their thing and you know everyone kept asking for drugs and I'd give them drugs and I was like everyone was off their heads and we had plenty of everything and I just felt really really fucking lonely yeah so um I just I I went upstairs to my bedroom and just jumped in bed and and like literally bawled my eyes out and like realized I was there for like a couple of hours and nobody even came up to check on me well, you've got a house full of people. My house. Yeah. It's full of people. They're all using my drugs. I'm feeling really sad and no one even check, checked up on me. And so I realised it was time to, because I had to get my medications daily from the chemist. I realised I had to get to the chemist before the chemist shut. So, and the chemists where I was living shut at 11 o'clock that night. So I went down to, um, down to the chemist to pick up my medication and I bumped into my mum and my sister at the chemist. At the chemist. And I hadn't seen my mum in like three months. And she looked so, like, frail. And she just looked at me. And um, I spoke to I spoke to my sister. And, you know, I actually explained to her... I'd, act, I'd actually applied for rehab a few weeks before. And I explained to her that, like, everything's out of control. And I'm fucked. But I've, I, I'm, I'm on the waiting list for rehab. And, you know, and my mum... She didn't say a word to me. I, and I, I, I felt like I couldn't say anything to her either. She just looked at me and her eyes looked so sad and it was shattering. So I went back to the house and I just, I needed to get out of there. So there was, um, I had a stolen car parked around the corner and I jumped in it and it was, it was just, it was a ute and I had drugs on me and money on me and I, and I had a charge of liquid G. And I decided to just go for a drive. I remember getting hungry and turning into a Macca's. But I don't remember anything else from that night. And then I remember waking up the next day and seeing my face on the news. And um, it wasn't my face. It was like a digital, digitally imaged facial thing that they do. Where did you wake up? At home. With your parents? No, no. I was living on my own at that time. Yeah. My heart just dropped and I saw the youth that I was driving and I'd, um, I'd run someone over. Straight away panic set in. And I couldn't believe that, like, I'd run someone over, I'd taken off. People were looking for me. Police were looking for me. So you'd seen the picture, like it was a wanted or something? Like a yeah, wanted. like, that. it was like, it was. they were showing the whole clip like it was at, at McDonald's. And, you know, without sort of giving up, I don't want to give too much information about the actual crime. Mm. But um, it was at a McDonald's and someone got run over. And they'd make a, made a drawing of the person that they were looking for in relation to it. But I recognised the car first because yeah. it, well, the car was really distinct. I'd, I'd done a lot of crime in it and, like, every time we'd do some crime, like, I'd just spray-painted a different colour and I, it was just really obvious that that was that car. Did you just feel sick? Like, what did you feel like? I just felt like it was like, what the fuck? Like, it was just... It was un, like an unbelievable feeling of guilt. Yeah. It was... Luckily, the person was still alive and... They, like they actually didn't sustain serious physical injuries, but the fact that I'd done something like this and I didn't actually remember. Yeah. And after the night that I just have, it was like the icing on the cake. 
for me. And uh, like I, I had my cousin there, and I, I said, "That's me." And he's like, "We've got to get rid of the car." He's like, "Burn it." I'm like, "Okay." So I took the car, and like I was just too scared to drive anywhere open, so I actually didn't burn it. I, I parked it in the back of the, these flats, like a couple of kilometers away from my house. I just left it there. A couple of days after that, like while I was on the drug treatment order, like because I was using all the time, um, every every time you got fourteen dirty urines, you'd have to spend fourteen days in jail. So my fourteen came up, and like literally two days after that happened, I went to jail for fourteen days. The whole time I was waiting for a knock on the cell door, big questions about this. The whole time, I was literally shitting myself coming down. Like, I just felt fucked the whole time. And, um... It didn't happen? It didn't happen. It didn't happen. And, like, the day I got out, I got a call from my lawyer. who said, there's a bed for re- at rehab for you. And that day that I got out, I had to go... Like, you, you have to, you get released from jail, and then you have to go front the magistrate on that same day. My mum was at the court that day, too. She came, and she, had, she goes, this is the last thing. She had a letter for the judge. And I, I still don't know what the letter says to this day, but she gave the, letter, the judge a letter, and, he, and he's like... It's obvious you've got a family who loves you very much. And, like, you know, through all that, she, she, she still kept coming back, you know? She, she, she didn't just forget about me completely, ever. Do you think she knew about the thing on the news? No, no. But um, I told her. I told her before I went to rehab, yeah. So in that time, you told her? I told her, yeah, because I felt like I, I, felt like I knew it was coming and I felt like she needed to know that that's what had happened. Yeah. And that... Like, if I wasn't going to be there for her, that was why. So you went to rehab, and then what happened? Like, was this, was this the start of recovery? Did that catch up with you? Well, yeah, that was that was the start of my recovery. Rehab, um, I went to rehab on the late September 2015, and but I hadn't used anything since the 31st of August that year as well, so 2015. Yeah. So I went to rehab and my first, I guess, I was so uncomfortable at rehab. I didn't, I thought rehab was going to be like jail. Like you go in and you just hard nut around and people respect you and do things for you and whatever. But it wasn't like that, you know, it was something really different, really scary. I was actually really determined that I was going to get through and I was going to finish it. I guess like the whole, I, I was there for 12 months and... Like, every single time my name would get called out because I had to go to an appointment or something, I thought I was going to the cop shop. I thought I was going to get questions for what I'd done, but it didn't happen. It didn't happen then. It wasn't until I actually had finished rehab and I was in the integration house when um, one morning there was a loud bang on the door at, at the rehab's integration house and detectives came and arrested me and um, took me away. Back to jail. Took me for questioning, but I guess I, I got bail straight away for it. Um, they had because I was still part of a rehab as well. Um, like they had no reason to hold me, and I was at that stage. I was still I was almost twelve months clean. And had you become a different person by then? One hundred maybe. Like I, I did a complete one eighty. Um, I'd learnt so much about myself I learned about my behaviours how I actually I saw the world through a really black and white lens it's either I was winning or I was losing but I learned to live in the grey and I learned that it was okay to be me and I learned that how to love myself without putting conditions on it and I learned how to love other people without putting conditions on them I had it's a lot of behaviours it's not easy to learn either 
Absolutely not. So Just, how long ago was this? <clears throat> when I got arrested? No, or, like when you... Well, yeah, when you had been 12 months sober and... Yeah, so that was like two years ago. So you got bail and, you know, you're in this, like, strong recovery. And what was the outcome of that incident? I ended up pleading guilty to it. And because I was on... I was on the drug court program when the... Um, when the offending happened. So yeah. the matter went back in front of the drug court magistrate, who by now knew me really, really well, had seen everything, like my whole life, my story. Because, mm. uh, like, as I mentioned before, like, I used to see him on a weekly basis. So he knew everything about me, pretty much. Um, and I guess he had confidence that I was going to do well and that I wasn't going to be a threat to... He put me on a corrections order for two years but then the police appealed appealed that that court that outcome and I had to go back to court uh, in May uh, 2017 or back to county court and um, like it was it, the the court case ended up going for about two weeks so much was brought forward I had like the manager of um, the drug court come talk about what the drug court was because not many even of the other um, judges understood what it was yeah so we needed I needed um, my lawyer organized that um, I had people from the rehab that I went to supporting me I had the manager there supporting me I had all my family there um, I had some of my friends there with everything that was brought to light the judge still felt like I needed to go to jail and the only thing that kept me from actually serving a jail term was the fact that I'd applied for rehab before I offended that I'd actually asked for help a couple of weeks before it had happened because I knew I was out of control my gosh like imagine if you hadn't of Exactly. So what they decided to do, a community sentence or something? So I got a community corrections order. I got a, a lot of community hours and I was on curfew for a while. I got pretty much the, the like the heaviest community corrections order like that they could actually give. And I've been doing that for the last year and a bit. Yeah. yeah. So now, like now, what what does it look like now? What's your recovery look like? You um, know, like you're, you're w- working in the field almost now, you know? Yeah, well, I, um, I, I went back to school um, in recovery. I went back to study a diploma of mental health and AOD. I guess the reason why I, I went back to study that is because I felt I was actually, I'd be an asset in that field and I felt like I'd actually be quite employable um, because my... I guess my story and my experiences aren't that unique. And I felt like I, I could really, a lot of people could really benefit from yeah. that. And to be honest, they, they actually, um, when I applied, they one of the prerequisites was that I'd need a police check and a working with children's check. I knew that there was going to be things that came up on my police check, but I felt like I, I could get around them. But I had I had no doubts about me getting a working with children's check because I've never been a perpetrator. I've never um, perpetrated violence, um, and it just and I'd heard of my friends of getting um, working with children's checks with like arm robbery charges. Mm. So I thought it'd be really really easy. I guess twelve months into to studying, I applied for working with children's check. And I got denied. They gave me a right to appeal. So I appealed it and I, I wrote everything about 
where I was at and how my life had changed and the kind of person I was, I was, they rejected it again and basically said, you're not going to be able to apply for one for another five years. I guess at this stage, my school required the working with children's check for me to go on placement and I couldn't provide it. So I was honest with them. And initially they were going to kick me out of school. They're like, this is a prerequisite. We can't get your placement without it. And there's like no ifs, buts or anything about it. And I was like, I was shattered. I just studied 12 months to go into a field that I, you know, I thought A, I'd be able to go into and B, I'd be really good at. I couldn't, my, I wasn't even going to be out, allowed to by my school. And then I actually uh, asked to sit down with the head of the department. And um, when I sat down with her, I told her my story. She was really open to that. And she said she'd make an exception. And that they actually changed, they changed their policy because of that as well. Wow. Yeah. That's effective advocacy right there. Like that. You know, usually it's not so easy to get a change like that. Yeah, yeah. So now you're at a place where, you know, you, you really want to use your experience to work in the field. You still don't have a working with children's. I still don't have a working with children's. But um, I was fortunate enough to find a, a, an organisation who allowed me to do my placement with them. So I recently completed my placement. You know, I wasn't working with, with it any kids or anything like that so they were quite happy for me to to do that you know I'm looking for work and every role that I I look at or apply for or whatever requires a working with children's check yeah which is a problem that so many people have and it's a real barrier to being able to get your life back yeah and I really like it really I really don't understand it because like like they in the AOD sector like they value lived experience mm. um, and lived experience you know doesn't necessarily well it, usually there's going to be problems police checks and things like that I feel like you know if I can't get work in the field then it's it's really it's doing the, the actual sector a disservice well I think you know things like not being able to reapply for another five years um, things like requiring a working with children's check in an organization that doesn't have any children in it like those are the kind of policies that seem really unnecessary as well you know like it doesn't even seem like a risk benefit situation it's it doesn't really even make sense yeah and it's really sad that um that you know a lot a lot of these organizations that i've been trying with are, are pretty risk adverse yeah you know and um but that's a policy thing, isn't it? Needing the working with children's check is a policy. Like, it's not even though some organisations would maybe choose not even to do that if they don't have, if they're not working with minors. Um, like, I know from having conversations with you before that it's not just an organisational issue. It's a, like a, you know, government policy. It is, yeah. So any government-funded role requires a working with children's check. That's just it. Like, any government-funded role. Yeah. in this sector requires a working with children's check. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, they're, they're you know, it's, it's not even up to the organisations, really. Mm. And I guess here I am, like, I'm, you know, due to actually get my diploma in um, AOD and my diploma in mental health at the end of this year. I'm looking for work and, you know, chances are I'm not going to get work in, in the public sector. And... I have to see that as my reality and it's actually quite a hard pill to swallow as well yeah because I actually always told myself like I, I wanted to go into public sector yeah 
Um, but here I am, um, faced with these challenges, I guess. Well, until you can appeal the decision. Yeah. So I just want to, like, we'll wrap up, but I just want to ask you, did your relationship with your mum improve through, you know, before she passed? Like, how was your relationship with her through your recovery? Um, so, you know, like, the whole time I was at rehab, she was really supportive. She used to visit all the time. Um, so I went through the rehab, I, I finished up, and then I chose to move back home with her and to sort of support her with her with her treatment and be there for her. Moving back home brought up a lot of things for me. Yeah. Um, because it was stuff that I hadn't really recognised in rehab because I hadn't been living with mum for a very long time before that. Yeah. So just the way that, she, you know, she... And, like, not intentionally or anything but she used to make me feel like I, I wasn't worthy I guess so that was a learning curve for me um, and I had to, to actually get a bit of counseling about our relationship as well mm. um, because I felt like going back into that uh, dynamic put me back to being a child made me feel like I was a child and it brought up a lot of my childhood Stuff. I chose to move out and get my own place. And after doing that, like, our relationship was fantastic. Yeah. Um, we were able to have an adult-to-adult relationship. I was able to be there for her. I was able to be there for my family. I guess, yeah, until she passed away. And I, you know, and even though she probably never told me, but she, I'm, I'm sure she passed away proud. I feel like she would have been. I don't even know her, but I feel like to have seen how far you came in that amount of time like it would be hard for anyone not to look at that and feel you know proud because it's not an easy thing to do 100% and like I guess like my mum she had she like the way I sometimes I talk about some of the stuff that happened when I was growing up and, and it sounds like she was a really heartless person but she wasn't she had the biggest heart and like all she wanted was the best for, for me and my sisters. She just had that manner. She just didn't know how to, yeah. to, to do it. She yeah. just thought that that's how... Like, cause as I said, the whole time, she she sort of... She stayed at an arm's length away from me. Mm. And, like, she was she constantly checking up, you know, even up until, like, that day that I was at court and she brought the letter for, for the judge. And it's something on... on <laughs> she, like, my little sister actually told me later on, she... She made her write the letter and she said something about she was she would rip off her clothes in the courtroom unless um, the court helped me with my drug problem. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that's, like, the most dramatic thing that yeah. she could think of. But that's how she was feeling, you know? Mm. So she loved me and, like, I, I, I loved her as well. I still love her. Of course you do. So what's your, you know, if someone's listening to this who really relates to your experience, what's like the one message that you would want to get across? You know, I don't want to... <laughs> I guess there's that cliche message of anything's possible and you can do it. But um, I guess for me, my message is like for me to, to, to change the way I was living and for me to actually value life, I had to learn to love myself and... I had to learn to be my own parent and not expect anything from anybody else mm. in this world, emotionally anyway. Um, mm. So, you know, and, and that's been sort of the pillar to my self-worth. So if, you know, do what you need to do to, to validate 
your inner child, do what you need to do to love yourself, look after yourself, and and re- really anything is possible, the sky's the limit. That's on, like, I feel like I'm going to go and listen to that message again and again when it's on the podcast because, yeah, that's something I really need to hear. Um, okay, so we just have these, like, a couple of lighthearted questions that I just ask you and you just say what comes in your head as soon as I ask it, okay? Mm-hmm. So your favourite food? Pizza. Your spirit animal. Spirit animal. Oh, lion. Your favourite book or TV show? Uh, Power. T- yeah, on um, Stan. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is your favourite thing to do in your leisure time at the moment? Go to the gym. What are you learning about at the moment? Me. Your favourite quality about yourself? My humour. Mm, I can see that. Okay, thank you so much for this podcast. It was so amazing. Um, Yeah, I really appreciate it. No worries, thank you. Straight from the Source is the voice of the Association of Participating Service Users, or APSU, which is a service of the Self-Help Addiction Resource Centre, or SHARC. APSU is a Victorian consumer representative body which believes that the voice of the people impacted by drugs and alcohol is important and should be heard. In our podcast, we look at a range of different issues relevant to those impacted by drug and alcohol use from varying perspectives and talk real, honest stories straight from the source. We will have more guests and more stories coming to you monthly. Podcast episodes and further information on APSU can be accessed through the APSU webpage, www.apsuonline.org.au, through our Facebook page, APSU Shark, and soon through iTunes and other podcasts. Music is from Jimmy Loops. His Facebook is Big Jimmy Loops, and his YouTube is Mr. Jimmy Loops. Just a reminder that the views expressed by our guests are not necessarily reflective of APSU and Shark. And where do we go? That's the question. Does somebody know if there's any other way if I'm beyond the prayer? Because it's every other day that I'm beyond repair. Hold on, da-dee-dee-doo-ho, ba-dee-dee-dee-so. Body hold it, hey, don't know where to go, don't know where be I want.